about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Hi, friends, again. Good to be with you. Uh, We are continuing our Titus series. What we're thinking about in this whole series, as you see on the screen, is how the gospel makes you good. The whole of Titus is about how the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ, when it gets into your bones, in your bloodstream, it makes you into an extraordinarily beautiful and good person and helps you influence the world. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, as we come to the center of this letter, we want to ask you to instruct us in the things of grace, that we might see more clearly your purpose in loving us, And dwell more securely in it, that we truly might become people who give ourselves away on behalf of others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We see on the screen uh, a man named Adam Grant and a book, Give and Take. Uh, Adam Grant is one of those very annoying, highly productive people, right, Uh, who's one of the top scholars in his field, published more papers than all of his peers at a much younger age. And he's written a really interesting book about how people in corporations make a mistake about what actually gets you ahead. Uh, He divides the world into kind of two big realms of people, givers and takers. And says, kind of intuitively, if you want to get ahead in your business, If you want to grow in your workplace, you don't need to be a taker. It's actually the givers, the people of generosity, the people who help out their workmates, the people who are caring and present to the people around them. They are the people who actually get ahead in the workplace. Counterintuitive, isn't it? But what's even more fascinating is when he did his research, he actually found that most people aren't givers and they're not takers. They're what he calls matches. People who give in order to receive the same back. You give a coffee to receive a coffee. You give a compliment to receive a compliment. You do good work so they'll do good things back to you. And he says, well, that's not really giving at all. Instead, he suggests that there's a way to become a giver rather than a matcher or a taker. He says, givers are people who, by consistently overriding their selfish impulses in order to help others, they strengthen their psychological muscles to the point where using willpower for painful tasks was no longer exhausting. 
If you really, really force yourself often enough, you won't be as selfish. You can take that off the screen, Tim. Uh, It's a fascinating thing, but Adam's whole theory of giving is actually not really that good news at all. Adam is known in his workplace for being instantly responsive to emails. He makes coffee for anyone. He's helpful for anyone's project. He, He tries to model his giving. But in the end, the reason he's a giver is so that in the end, he'll be at the top. He's just a long-term matcher. And no matter how much willpower and impressing down of selfish impulses you can do, you can't actually get rid of them by sheer will, can you? How is it that you actually become a giver? Someone who genuinely, deeply, unfailingly, sustainably, and instinctively gives themselves away to others. Well, verse 14 seems to suggest that you can become someone eager to do what is good. But the path to getting there is not more willpower. The path to goodness is grace. Paul says the grace of God has appeared. And the grace of God can make you a giver in a way you cannot even imagine. So this evening, four things on how grace makes you good. You with me? Verse 11, first one. This is the most simple, but the most fundamental. Grace came first. Have a look at verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. The grace of God came first. What is the grace of God? Grace is unmerited gift and favor. And this passage suggests that that comes from God on high. And it is not simply an idea. It's not simply a pretty thought. It is something that has appeared. It's concrete. In Jesus Christ, it says in verse 13 and 14, the grace of God has appeared in a concrete action in the world. You know, God, when he showed up in the world, didn't show up ultimately in wrath or anger or judgment. He came with unmerited favor. And Paul goes on to say that it is saving favor. It brings salvation to all people. Regardless of who you are, regardless of where you have been, no matter how great, no matter how small you are, no matter how messed up or how together, the grace of God has appeared in Jesus Christ. And it is enough to save you for eternity. Grace came first. And this is so important, friends. You see, you don't become good and then God shows you favor. You don't pull your life together and then God considers you worthy of saving. You don't have to become the person in order for God to love you. Goodness follows grace. Grace always comes first. One of the interesting things that Adam Grant found is that some of the most disciplined givers, the people who gave all the time, normally destroyed themselves. 
They burned out. They flamed out. Very few were the number of people who were givers constantly, who had energy. Do you know what I think the reason is? Because they didn't get this. Grace comes first. If you think your goodness is a way to win God's favor, then your goodness will destroy you and ultimately it is not the goodness that you perceive it to be. Ultimately, when goodness becomes before grace, we are just doing divine matching. It's a coercive power play. I am good enough to receive your favor and your salvation. It's divine bartering. But friends, grace comes first. And if you want to be good, the first step is actually to let go of your goodness. To let go of your giving. And receive the grace of the Lord Jesus. That's the first thing. Grace comes first. But the second thing is this. Grace actually, it reorders our desires. You see, people make the mistake of of thinking that the grace of God, the salvation that comes in Jesus Christ is just the ABCs of the Christian faith. It's the thing you do in Sunday school. It's the thing you do in the the, the, the first moment. It's, It's the springboard. It's take off. But for Paul, did you notice, it's not ABC, it's A to Z. It's not the springboard, it's the swimming pool. It's not takeoff, it's the destination. All of the Christian life is to grow out of grace. He says in verse 12, It, the grace of God that has appeared, teaches us. It instructs us. It orders us. It disciplines us. To say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to say yes to a self-controlled, upright and godly life. You see, the reason why grace can change you is that it operates not at the behavioral level, but at the level of desire. It's not just you pressing yourself down with willpower. Grace goes after your very desires, your very instincts. Grace helps us say no to worldly passions, to the instincts our culture gives us about living and about life. It silences and it breeds in us new desires, a different way to live. Now, in some ways, this isn't a really new principle at all. We do this all the time. Always when we want to say yes to something, we have to say no to something else. If you want to say yes to a trimmer body, you have to say no to certain Foods, and you have to say yes to getting up. You know, if you want to get to the top of your job, you have to say no to certain work practices and yes to certain others, right? There's always something that enters your life and it strikes you at the level of desire. But Paul says, you know, there's nothing like the grace of God. The grace of God, when you let it touch your desire, can silence even the most powerful voices in your culture. And building you a yes to a whole different life. You see, most of us, we spend our Christian life uh, living on a whole different principle of motivation. We say no to that way of life because of the glances of disapproval of other people. We say no to that way of life because that's not who we are. We say no to that way of life because of our reputation. We say no to that way of life because we feel bad. But all of those mechanisms don't make you good. They make you proud 
or they make you depressed, but they don't make you good. At the base motivational level of your Christian life has to be the atomic bomb of the grace of God. And the Holy Spirit all day long is calling at us, going, it's not about guilt, it's about grace. You don't say no because of your reputation. You say no because you are a beloved child of Almighty God. You say no because you are eternally saved by the grace of God that has appeared in Jesus Christ. You say no because you are a beloved child of the Father. Grace, when you let it, reorders your desire. There's a couple of deeper layers we need to go with that. There's there's a couple of extra things in the passage that show us how grace instructs our desire. So the third thing I want to say is that what, what grace does at that motivational level is it retells the story. Grace retells the story. You see, ultimately... One of the big things that holds us back from being good is the unconscious story that our culture holds us in. And really interestingly, this is true of Adam Grant, the guy I mentioned at the beginning. A really cunning reporter was talking to him and was looking at the way he arranged his life and his uber productivity and his amazingness, and just it looked all a bit obsessive. And he said, Adam, what's the story? Like, what, what drives you? And he said this. It's going to come on the screen. His answer was, mortality. It's something I can't fix. I can't do anything with or about it. To the point that it's the equivalent of extreme physical pain. He goes on to say, I, I, I have to schedule every moment in my life, even if it's watching a television show with my wife. Because if my brain's engaged, I know it's not going to be a terrifying evening. You see, Adam Grant's whole way of life is driven by a dark vision of annihilation. There is... Nothing before me, and there is nothing after me. And I really don't want to think about that. And I have to find a way to be remembered. And so I will marshal every second of every day to give as much as possible so that I might be remembered after I'm gone. You see, the story he lives in drives his desire and and underpins his whole goodness. And most of us live in that story, Tim, you can take that down, where nothing is before us and nothing is after us. We've just grown up with it in the imagination of our culture. And if you have that in the back of your mind, what is the point in being good? What is the point in saying no to desire? When all you have is a second to live before the nothingness breaks in again. Grace tells a different story. Have a look. Verse 13. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Paul says it's not nothing and nothing. It's grace behind and glory ahead. It's what Jesus did in the past and what Jesus will do again one day. We live between grace and grace. We live between the one gift of forgiveness and the next gift of a future. We live between Jesus and Jesus. Not nothing and nothing. And when you live in that story, goodness starts to make sense. When you live surrounded, enraptured with the grace of God behind and before, with the glory of Jesus looming just ahead, things change. You know, it's kind of like the eclipse that happened in the US just a moment ago. A uh, moment ago. A little while ago. Just, just now. <laughs> uh, here's a picture on the screen from NASA. Uh, you know, eclipses are fascinating things, right? You have the sun, right, who powers our existence, and then you have a puny rock, right? It's just a rock in the sky. And for a few moments, that puny rock can block out the sun, but not for long. Friends, we live in the eclipse of the glory of Christ. We live in the small moment when a few puny rocks block out his glory. And soon the moment will end and the glory will appear. And the decision you have to make is what story you're going to live in. Because if you believe that the eclipse is all that there is, then who cares how you live? But if you believe that he is coming back, that will shape your desire at a motivational level. See how that grace instructs? Of course I'll say no to this. What's the point of that? I'm going to forget about that desire. 3,000 years in the glory, that's not going to mean anything to me. I'm going to live for Jesus because his glory is coming and his glory will last. Grace retells the story and by that way, it changes our desire. You can take it down, Tim. But the fourth thing we get here and and the second way we kind of, grace kind of undoes us at, at that motivational level, Paul says that grace also, it secures our identity. Grace secures our identity. And this is so important, particularly if we're thinking about desire. You know, one of the things our modern world says about desire is that your deepest instinct, your your deepest passion, that is you. You are your most fundamental desires because in this moment between nothing, your most special desire is the only thing significant about you. And it makes sense in a a world like that, that thinks like that, in a story like that, where you are your desire, that it is anything, it is immoral to deny anyone their desires, let alone for me to deny mine. If that's who I most fundamentally am. But grace says something different about who you are. In verse 14, it it, it talks about the Lord Jesus and his act of grace and how that act of grace was an act of redemption that redeems us from wickedness and purifies us. 
that Jesus kind of buys us out from under our desires. That He purifies us. That ultimately our desires aren't who we are. That ultimately they are the things that bind us rather than the things that free us. And the Lord Jesus, by His death and resurrection, has freed us from them. You are not your desires. Neither are you your mistakes and your failures and your sin. Because Jesus has purified those from you as well. You are not your desire. You are not your failures. What are you instead? Well, to, to explain this, let me, let me tell you a story. Um, one, one day, Cass and I were buying some shoes for me. Uh, we went in. I wanted white shoes. I don't remember why, but I did. I went in, sale rack, because I'm cheap like that, and got some shoes and sat down and was putting them on. And like, I don't think much about the way I tie on shoes these days. Uh, it's fairly automatic. And I, I don't really know what happened with the tying. Um, but when I looked down, the shoes were just covered in blood. And there was this cut all down my hand, and they were just soaked. And I'm looking going, oh my goodness. Um, Cass, my wife, she looks, she looks down at the shoes, and she looks up at me, and she says, well, do you like them? Because now they're yours. <laughs> the sprinkling, the baptism of these shoes in my DNA <laughs> claimed them in a way that money never could. <laughs> Let's go in the cats. <laughs> and, you know, this is exactly what this verse is saying. You know, you, you do not belong to your desire. You do not belong to your failure. The Lord Jesus has redeemed you out from under those things. Do you know who you are? You are a people that are his very own. You are not your desire. You are not your failure. You are his. His blood is sprinkled all over you. By the blood of his cross, he claims you back from desire and failure to be wholly and completely his. And that comes with a whole new identity and a whole new reason to live in the present because you don't belong to anything else anymore. You don't belong to your own selfish impulses. You don't have to live them out anymore. You've been freed from them. You're his. So your whole life is an offering back to him. You see, grace lays such a deep claim to all that you are by the blood of the cross. That when you really see it, when you let it teach you who you really are, you start to become eager to do what is good. You see, as we conclude, the, the, the way that grace changes us, you know, it's, it, it's completely different to the way Adam Grant describes you know, if, if our lives were a piece of metal, Adam Grant says, just get a hammer and just whack it into shape. Whack it in the shape you want. But we know that that just leads to breaking. You know what grace does? It doesn't break us into shape. It melts us into space, into shape. 
through the hot flame of the love of Christ. Our desires aren't forced out of us. They're melted. You see, the only way that you're going to become someone who gives themselves away to others is to know at the depth of who you are, verse 14, that He gave Himself for you. That He gave away everything He was on the cross so that you might have a new story and a new identity. That grace might come first. It's only to the extent that you know that His life has secured you. His self-offering of Himself has given you a future and an identity. It's only when you're secure in that, melted in that, that you will continually, instinctively, insatiably be able to give yourself to others. Grace can make you good and nothing else. Let's pray. Now, Father, we come and we acknowledge that our goodness, our matching, is nothing without grace. Grace that redeems us, that forgives us, that purifies us, that claims us. That the Lord Jesus, though having everything, gave away everything that we might gain eternal treasure. Oh Father, melt our hearts by your Spirit this evening. Melt them into shape. That by the deep teaching of the grace of Jesus Christ, we might truly give ourselves away to others. Eager to do what is good. And we pray this in Jesus' name. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.